You know, unlike our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted for their faith around the world, I don't think many of us are going to be detained for our faith, arrested necessarily for the proclamation that Jesus is Lord. Um, and it's probably because we live in the glowing embers of the fire that was a culture that respected the Christian faith. Like, oh yeah, yeah, do good things. Um, love your neighbor. Uh, be kind to one another. These are the, these are the rails that, that we've run on for so long. And, and even though it relies on this moral foundation, what does it want to do? It wants to get rid of Jesus. Can we have the ethic of Jesus without him? Could we do that? Are you noticing that? It's just generally, culturally, like we want the kingdom and all of that stability. And you have neighbors who care about one another. And you have people who are looking out not only for their own interests, but also to the interests of others. And we love that about aspects of our culture. And we want that to stay. But we could just, if we could get rid of the king, that'd be awesome. So we're in this grand experiment, culturally, in the West, generally. If, what could, can we have the king? How long could we have a kingdom without the actual king? And the clock's ticking, isn't it? Because it just feels like it's not going to last too much longer. How, how long can you have love your neighbor as yourself without love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? The twin commandments, the, the two sides of the same coin. I mean, when, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. How do I express my love for God? By loving my neighbor. And how do I express love for neighbor? Well, it, it happens through love for God because my heart is aligned with the king, and so then I live out this ethic. And the clock is, the clock is ticking. They can't be separated for long. It's not going to last. But it is, it is possible then, because of the clock ticking, that, you know, in our lifetime or your children's lifetime, you could be detained uh, for, for being a Christian. You could be read your rights, accused as a Christian. Ooh, ooh, calling me a Christian now, are you? Yeah. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say and do can and will be used against you in a court of law, right? You have the right to bear affliction like Jesus. Anything you say or do should all be to the glory of God and should not be able to convict you of lawlessness or arrogance. You have the right to suffer like Jesus. We're not, we're not doing that well, even in the little bits of suffering. <laughs> in fact, we're, we're giving up in comfort what persecuted Christians around the world won't give up in under suffering and torture. <laughs> We're like, okay, fine, I give up, I give up. You looked cross at me. I'll stop being a Christian, at least actively. At least actively. So we have to say, do, do, are, we, are we just loving the kingdom without the king? Or do, does our heart long for just, just Jesus, just Jesus? Because that will mark our lives quite differently than the world's, won't it? In our study, Paul has been wrongly accused, misunderstood, and I think we're supposed to understand that's par for the course. Wrongly accused and misunderstood. How many of you signed up for that? Well, if, if they persecuted me, they're going to, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. <laughs> that's not my, those aren't my favorite two things. Misunderstood, wrongly accused. That, that gets me a little fired up. But that's the, that's the way the world sees Christians, right? 
And our task is not to give them any good reason to convict us, just all the bad reasons, like, you're such a Christian, you just follow Jesus, and you just do everything he says, and that just irritates me. Oh, well, okay, yeah, good, phew. I thought you were going to accuse me of lawlessness or arrogance or bristling pride to put you in your place, because after all, I'm a king's kid, and you can just go to hell for all, whoa, wait, what just happened there? The arrogance that says, I know your destiny, and you're gone, and I'm going to be just fine, and whoa. So good reasons. Give them good reasons. Here's our passage, Acts 25, 13 through 27. Uh, I will, I will um, with just a little interruption, read this to you. Now, when some days had passed, with, and this is Paul in, in jail. This is Paul um, in prison after a couple years of just being in Caesarea under Felix, the governor. When some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Okay, here comes the big interruption. Oh, Agrippa the second, uh, from that Herod family, the dumpster fire of a family, just Herod Agrippa. Uh, he grew up in, in Nero, or not in Nero, but the, the Caesar Claudius's court, uh, advocate for the Jews. He, he continued to gain more and more territory. Rome kept giving him more land in his in that region of, of Jerusalem. And so he was well-placed to, to be a part of interrogating Paul. Maybe Festus could get some help um, on, on what's going on with Paul. And then Bernice. Bernice is amazing. She was the queen of scandal. Luke drops her name like it's this intriguing morsel. And of course, you don't, Bernice, that, I don't know, who's that? But it's, this little, it's just this little name drop to make you go, wow, that's, that's interesting. I had to have someone else summarize it because there's just so much. Her, Tom Wright summarizes her reputation like this. Bernice was the sort of figure whose photograph, had she lived in our times, would seldom have been out of the glossy magazines. She was Agrippa's sister. But they traveled together and lived together, and many tongues wagged about them. She had been married to their uncle, another Herod, Herod of Chalcis, and after his death had set up house with Agrippa, at one point, perhaps to silence the whispers, she married the king of Cilicia, a man by the name of Polemo, but then went back to Agrippa, which of course started the whispers going again. At one point, it was rumored that she became the mistress of Titus, the adopted son of Vespasian, the conqueror of Jerusalem in AD 70, and Vespasian's successor as an emperor. So though Luke mentions none of this, the fact that he just says, and Bernice, in verse 13, may tell its own story. Most of it's his first hearers or readers would raise at least one eyebrow at the thought of this fashionable and powerful woman coming into contact with Paul. It's as though reading the story of some traveling evangelist, we were to come upon a photograph of the preacher shaking hands with Marilyn Monroe. So it's just like, and Bernice. You're like, okay, that's interesting. Like, what is she doing there? And what help would that be to Paul's case? So she's, she was the queen of scandal, colored by scandal in every way. And, and this... Uh, this historian David Brown says that Rome would have created scandal even if there wasn't one because they wanted their queens that. That's just the way we want them. We just want, we want them on the front page of the glossy magazines. Okay, so they stay there many days. Festus laid Paul's case before the king saying, there was a man left prisoner by Felix when I was at Jerusalem. The chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. 
So when they came here, I made no delay, but on the next day, took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion. I want to pause there for a second. That word translates as, translates as religion. Um, if you just, if you press your finger on your Bible, the definition should pop up. Now, if you're using some digital resource, it'll say desdemonia. It'll say like the fear of the gods or superstition. Not quite religion like maybe we think of it, but he's just thinking in terms, through his worldview, he's thinking like, okay, so you think you can control the what's up there through this sort of manner of, what, magic, superstition, whatever. Um, that's what you think is going to happen? He doesn't understand, and none of our friends really do understand the worship of resurrected Jesus as Lord. That just doesn't compute. Can you... Would you agree with me? When you, if, if you were to get down to it and say, so why do you go to church? Or what's the deal? Why Sunday morning? You say, well, I don't know if you know the story, but the, the most perfect human that ever existed was died bearing the sins of humanity. It was raised from the dead, is exalted to the right hand of God the Father. And he's due honor. And glory. What, do you, what do you expect? I believe in Jesus. That means... <laughs> He's the resurrected Lord. Of the, I, we worship him as supreme. If you ever got down to that detail with your friends, they would say, yeah, you are kind of weird. That is interesting. Yeah, yeah, that, is, no, that does make sense. You're, you are very, very strange. But, but, but Festus didn't get that. He doesn't understand what's going on. He's rather, at certain points of dispute with him about their own religion, and listen to his perspective, and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. So it's, about this, it's something about this Jesus who Paul, or who is who's dead, but now Paul asserts that he is alive. Being at a loss of how to investigate these questions, he's like, I don't know. I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. And this will be the focus today, that secular perspective, how they see us. How does, how, what, is this, what does this trial look like? How, what do they even think about us? What is this whole thing about the worship of Jesus? I want to I focus on that because they're at a loss for how to investigate those questions too. Like, I don't know. I mean, I guess if that's as crazy as you want to be, I guess. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, Festus goes on, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Festus says, tomorrow you shall hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. They entered the audience hall with the military tribunes, the prominent men of the city. This is quite a court happening right here. This is a big deal. And then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Entertain us or something like that. Yeah, come on in. And Festus said, King Agrippa, attention please, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he'd done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I've brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, Remember, he knows lots of things about the Jewish religion and all that. 
so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. That'd be nice. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Isn't that interesting? He's accused as a Christian, but other than that, I'm not really sure what to do with the, with the guy. And I think that's what a lot of the world is wondering about you right now. Oh, did I just see their car at that parking lot? That's interesting. Why do they do that? Why do they come to a church? What, what's the deal? I really don't understand it. I mean, they're, they're pretty decent people. They're not, I mean, they are a little bit crazy because they worship a resurrected Jewish peasant. But other than that, uh, I mean, they seem okay, but what is going on with them? So what I'd like to do is just try on a perspective to get started. Because how do you enter a story like this? And I just want to put you in prison instead of Paul just for a second. Don't, it'll, it won't last long. Um, but just think about what are the charges against you right now? What are they saying about you? You know, being misunderstood and wrongly accused is kind of par for the course. But like, what, what are they saying about you? What would the charges be against you? Would your state-appointed attorney be able to say, actually, she doesn't actually believe this stuff. It's all good. <laughs> he, he doesn't actually, he sa- I know he says he talks about Jesus, but he doesn't actually do any of the things that, fa- so don't, he can, we can get him off. So just sign this plea right here and just say, I was just kidding. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, my grandma told me, and so that's just kind of, I've been operating. But, but look at my life. I do nothing that a, that a Jesus follower does. Get me out of this prison, right? Get me out of here. And you've heard this before. I don't, don't claim that this is anything new, but a pesky pastor question would be, if you were charged with being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Or could your defense attorney get you off just like that and say, look, look at his life. Nine to five, maybe even nine to nine, he or she is at work. They just work all day, just like everybody else, Right? And, and yeah, I did, they do maybe bow their head to pray at lunch or something like that. But other than that, they're just the normal person. They go home, they binge Netflix on the weekends, they go to the lake just like everybody else does. I mean, they're just normal people. Leave them alone. There's nothing definitive about their life that says they actually believe this stuff. Boy, I'm a pain in the tush, aren't I? I'm sorry. Okay, so let's just, um, let's just take a look at this, this Christian from the worldly point of view and, and, and from the biblical point of view as well. Let's just try to think of this. What, is, what does this Christian believe? Um, Festus, for instance, has a, has a problem. It's going to be odd to send a prisoner under heavy guard to Rome and say, yeah, they didn't like him, so what do you want to do with him? Right? That doesn't really make a lot of sense. What's, what's, but he has a point of view. There's a lot of controversy over this person, Jesus. Uh, and, and, and I don't know what to do about that, but it's about this certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. He's got the basic picture there, doesn't he? Yeah, it really is about this Jesus who was dead and is now alive. We hang a lot of theology on all that, but that's, yeah, okay. That's, that's basically it. It's not this idea that, you know, there was this really influential figure way back in the day, you know, in this case it was, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago that he died, and, and he's just got this lasting spiritual legacy. No, it, it's that he was dead bodily, and he's alive bodily, and there's something 
that's shifted about the people. There's a big controversy now. There's a, there, it's like this message about Jesus as the resurrected Messiah has been shot out of a cannon and we don't know how to put it all back in. There's something going on with these people and we're not sure how to investigate it. That's what he's saying, right? So I wonder if we, if we could start to do that because the onlookers, the skeptics don't know what to make of Christians, don't really know what to make of Jesus. That was then and that is now, right? People, if you have honest conversations with your friends, it, doesn't it kind of end up with like, well, I mean, you do your thing and I'll do my thing and let's just kind of agree to disagree. That seems to be the level of conversation that I'm having. So what makes us tick? What is it we believe about Jesus? Why do we believe it? And then, of course, it's pesky, but you know, do our lives show any indication that the belief has reached our activity? You know, or, or turn it the other way, you know, the activities, don't they actually betray our real belief? What do we believe about who provides? What do we believe about who's actually on the throne? What do we believe about... The, the, the size of our problems versus the size of our God. Can, and and each, each time we, we express our actual beliefs, we just need to bring those to light with Jesus. What do we do if we confess our sins? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. This is not like a shame complex. This is like, wow, if I really believed that God was on the throne and he knew what he was doing, I probably would sleep a little better at night. If I really believe that that it's not Microsoft who signs my paychecks or it's not this, you know, Costco, it's not this, that, that ultimately I work as unto the Lord. So whatever this mid-level manager called my boss <laughs> is, it, it doesn't, that doesn't, it doesn't matter. I'm going to live as unto the Lord. We just have to, we have to examine ourselves. And when we, the, the way we live reflects what we actually believe. Can we be honest about that? And then when we make, when there's the gap, we just say, Lord, have mercy. And he says, I will, I do. In fact, I kind of have a sense of humor about it because I've been waiting for you to have this conversation with me. It, I'm not saying it has to be this like super shameful, comp just say, Jesus, wow. Okay, there it is again. I apparently don't believe that you, dot, dot, dot. So we just have to process this openly with Jesus and I suggest with others. But let's, let's, let's say that there's, there are issues with investigating the truth of that Christian. And I just want to give us three types of testimony that we, can, uh, that we can reveal. The first kind of testimony is just very personal. It's very private. Not private, but very personal. Um, and, and it's that I experienced Jesus, you know? Romans uh, 8, 16, and 17 the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering, then we may also share in his glory, right? The Spirit testifies with our spirit. This is, I don't know, you can't take that away from me. Jesus has saved me. He's redeemed me. This is my story. This is my song. This is the way I... I now, but what happens is people say, well, that's good for you. I could probably name 10 people in the last month that have been like, good for you. Good for you. It's so important, said this guy in Issaquah on, Sunday, on Monday. It's so important that, you know, we all have those transitions in our lives. And I was like, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's right. 
And your transition was joining the army. Mine was following Jesus. Okay, that's interesting. Well, anyway, I just, I just need to be on the record of saying Jesus is Lord. He's transformed my life. And, but it only goes so far right now. Have you noticed that? They can't take away your personal testimony, but neither are they terribly convinced by it. Any of you notice that? No arms, some arms, some hands. And well, it's happening. With or without you, it's happening out there. Um, people are kind of like, well, that's, that's good. You know, that's, that's good. You do you, you know. Or, um, you know, I'll, I'll say, you know, if Jesus is who he says he is, then we have a lot of explaining to do. If he is the risen Lord, then we have to figure out what that looks like. And that's what we're doing as a group of people on Sunday mornings and during the week is trying to figure that out. How should our lives be? And then, you know, someone will say, well, that's if. You're like, oh, yeah. That's if Jesus is Lord. So that first testimony goes so far, and it's good. And we should continue to do that. But it's kind of a, well, religion is a private matter, whatever floats your boat. They may say it to you. So let me get this straight. 2,000 years after the fact, and I might interrupt, well, after the facts, plural, but they were like, okay. 2,000 years after the fact, you rely on a Jewish tradesman turned martyr to tell you who you are and determine your eternal destiny even after he was turned in by his own people and crucified by the Romans. See, I always like to make the problem worse before I make it better. But, (laughs) so you're telling me that 2,000 years ago, a marginalized Jewish peasant was turned in by his own people, crucified by the Romans, and you're going to rely on him to tell you not only your eternal destiny, but what you're supposed to be doing today? That's crazy talk, right? So we, need, we might need a little bit more. <laughs> There's another testimony. Um, if, I'll just say this for Doug. Another um, epistemological warrant, Doug. Another reason to believe, another, way, another reason, and that's the early eyewitness testimony of the resurrection of Jesus. And you may need this as much as your friend needs this, so I'll share it with you. Paul will tell his eyewitness testimony on the next page. That's one of those things we rely upon. But even atheist New Testament scholars, did you know there's such a thing? They usually show up around Christmas and Easter on, on mainstream news. And let's interview Bart Ehrman to talk about why you can't trust the Bible and why he's a New Testament scholar and he's telling you why, yeah, that's probably not what Jesus said. And all, have you ever seen those guys? Yeah, I turned that TV off too. But atheist New Testament scholars are going to trust that Paul and the apostles believed with all their hearts that they had encountered the risen Jesus. They're going to agree. Like, yeah, those guys absolutely believed it, that they encountered the risen bodily Jesus. And, and they'll agree, this is newish, they'll agree that the worship of Jesus as divine happened within three years of his crucifixion. Think about that. Within three years. So, uh, some, so some would say that's by A.D. 36. Uh, there's some people who would say he was crucified in A.D. 33. Um, but either way, by A.D. 36, they're like, even atheist New Testament scholars, atheist historians are like, yeah, he was worshipped as divine by then. This is not something that happened many, many uh, years later. And so this is one of... Uh, we'll talk about five. This is, this is, 
Look at Gary. He's really focused right now, and he wants to show you something. Five multiply attested minimal facts pointing to the resurrection, meaning that there are, there are so many facts that point to each one of these things that they're incontrovertible. He doesn't even use the empty tomb right now. He's writing the, the big book on the resurrection. It's like that big. Um, he's, he's the guy. Uh, and and he, he wants to get down to just five minimally or minimal facts, multiply attested. I'm saying every, virtually agreed upon by every scholar. And he's not saying that scholars create facts. Don't get him wrong. They, he's just saying that they can't argue with these. So here's a second type of testimony to try to help us out. Um, and, and what kind of eyewitness testimony, or what kind of testimony matters in matters of history? It's early and eyewitness. Early, but, but not early and you weren't there. And not just eyewitness, but later on, 50 years ago, as you recollect about the good old days. He's talking about early and eyewitness news. And that's what matters in, in issues of, of history and religion. Uh, even atheist New Testament scholar Bart Ehrman can cite 15 independent sources for the crucifixion of Jesus. Like, yes, he was crucified. Within, within 100 years, he's like, yeah, everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. Now, my, my Muslim friends don't believe that. They believe something a little different, that Jesus looked like he was crucified, but God replaced him immediately and took him off so that he wasn't crucified. There's some differences there. Uh, but every New Testament scholar uh, can, can agree on that. Our earliest reports of Alexander the Great, that's an amazing story. Alexander the Great took over all, all the known world. We're 300 years after the fact. So all, everything we know about Alexander the Great, the celebrated conqueror, all the way to Persia, we, he, they started writing the history down 300 years later. How about the Buddha? 600 to 800 years later, they started writing about the Buddha. <laughs> okay? Jesus is worshipped as divine within three years. And here's five realities that, that virtually every scholar agrees to. And Habermas wants to, wants to know, how do you get out of the resurrection after dealing with these facts? First, we have James, the brother of Jesus. He becomes a believer. If you look at Mark 3, Mark 6, John chapter 7, you see that Jesus' family, his own brothers, thought he was nuts. He'd come into town, they're like, can we hide you away? Can we get you? Stop, 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 stop. You're making a fool out of yourself and you're making a fool out of us. Just stop it. Just stop it. But then in Acts chapter 1, we see Mary and the boys in the upper room. Just 40 to 50 days after the crucifixion of Jesus, James, the brother of Jesus, is like, yeah, he's God. Ridiculous, crazy incontrovertible. I used to make fun of my embarrassing brother, but he is the real deal. <laughs> the second thing is uh, the, the central common Christian message, uh, the fancier term in, in Greek would be the homologeia, the early agreed upon messages that he was deity, that he died and was raised. This, within three years, everybody that is having any conversation is deity, he's God. He died and was raised. 
And that is just established. Deity, death, and resurrection. And the third one is that creeds that were passed along orally. So for people that couldn't read, they could at least memorize a little ditty, you know, a little jingle, a little something. And these things just flowed throughout the Christian community and popped up in all these different archaeological evidences and in the letters and all that kind of stuff. Just these little things like if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's just these little, these things that we like to memorize because they're so tight and so succinct and so they say it they say it all paul and and peter and their letters they'll throw those in there because these are the things that are floating around the community first corinthians 11 says what i received from the lord or first corinthians 15 3 through 7 it's like this drop in this little ancient footnote for i delivered to you as of first importance what i also received this is the message that's been flowing throughout Christianity. And he's writing this just a short time after, this would be 15 years after the resurrection, but he's got that even beforehand. This common message has been out there. That the Christ died for our sins, accordance with the scriptures, read them. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas or Kephas, then to the twelve, then, then to more than 500, and then most of whom are still alive, and then some have fallen asleep. But then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. So we've got these, these stories that are just passed along that happened early, 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 early. And we have the message that we'll look at next week, too, of just Paul's own story of like, hey, you guys know me. You know where I was running. You knew how I was persecuting. You knew that I was so zealous for Yahweh. And then, and then I found out that Jesus is Yahweh. And so how do you make sense of his life? Anybody who encountered Paul had to go, yeah, that doesn't make sense unless you actually met with Jesus. And Paul's life, and I think our lives need to be be in, in this mix here, you know, that first testimony of like, hey, this is where I was headed, but then Jesus did this. But Paul stands early, 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 early. Within three years, he's been, he's been doing this. Um, in fact, that's part of the, the apostles preaching on this next one too, is, is that Paul went to Jerusalem just three years after the crucifixion, after his, his life had been changed. Um, and he spent 15 days reviewing notes with the other apostles and yeah, this is the central message of Jesus. He is deity. He died. He's raised. And now I've got to, we've got to figure out how that slots into our life or really up, upturns everything about our life. In just a, just a few years, Paul has been hearing the creeds. The preaching has begun and he's been trying to stamp this out. He turns to Jesus and realizes this is the true message. So these are things that are multiply attested, minimal facts. There are other obvious things about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that comes down to is, you know, does the life of Jesus, this new life, this resurrected life, does it make a difference in you? Does it make a difference in me? Not just with our words, right? Our words are important. Tell the story of, of the transformation. Jesus came, he met me in my brokenness and he turned me around and he set me on. No longer am I um, of a thief, I've become generous. No longer am I hiding, I've become wide open. 
Um, these, are, these are all things that, that are true. But it's with our lips and our lives, we know this, we proclaim the deity, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Our lips and our lives. So we've got to say it. But our lives, pe- people are watching. People are watching. Um, now, again, the question, if you were charged with being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? This is just the pattern of our life together. Why is it you care so much for that person, that church member that you've been taking care of so much? Um, we're family <laughs> because God has brought us together and we're doing life together under the banner of Jesus as Lord. Um, why do you invest your time and money and why do you, why do, you do that? Well, this is, this, this is the reality I live under, that Jesus is on the throne. How do your, how do your lives match up with, with your lips? The proof of the pudding is in the eating. So are we nuts, crazy, superstitious, arrogant, seditious, chaotic elements in the crowd? Or, by the way of the teaching of Jesus and the apostles, are we the best citizens and neighbors that you could possibly ask for? Are we the ones that have are pouring out our love, even for enemies. That's the one ethic that the kingdom without the king doesn't work. Have you noticed that? It's like, love your neighbor if they're like yourself, I think is what the, is what the saying goes. Love your neighbor if they're similar to you. And Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those persecuting. You don't have that without the king. You don't have that without resurrection power coming from the inside of you. You just don't. You just don't have it. So we live lives of peace and tranquility, order and love, even if we kind of had this edge to us, this subversive loyalty to Jesus. Like, hey, I'll go with you as far as, oh, that's as far as here, because I have loyalty to Jesus. Why don't you come further? Because I'm loyal to Jesus. So I'll just meet you back here when you guys come back, because my heart is for Jesus. Peter wants us to live out this faith. All the apostles want this and and it seems like the the message of the new testament just keeps going like don't shoot yourself in the foot by your behavior stop don't do that don't shoot yourself in the beautiful feet that bring good news just hold your ground (laughs) and and I, i think he'd be putting on a red cap and just saying make the church good again make them good like, do the right things. Do, do, care for the poor. Care for the marginalized. Actually seek out those who are different from you. Love your enemies actively, not just if they find you. Just go out there and actually pursue them. And we, as a church, I think are, are being called to do this. We talked last week, you know, they're not coming into the church services. Like, and we're not going to them either. Oh, well... So who's got the harder heart, right? <laughs> They're really hard. They don't want to come into church services. Well, do, do, do we have the resurrected heart to go to the lost and the broken and the hurting? Because that's one area where um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of competition. I talk with some of my pastor friends, and you know, there's always this little edge of like, so what are you guys doing? What's working? Whatever. Hardly anybody's saying, we're just pursuing broken people, lost people who practically have nothing to offer back to us. That's what we're doing. Oh, you mean like religion that is pure and sincere, like widows and orphans and the people that you can't get anything back from. It's like, that's an amazing strategy that nobody's talking about because it doesn't quite pay the quick dividends. But if we're going to meet Jesus, where are we going to find him? 
in the prison. <laughs> what do you say in Matthew 25? Like, when did we see you naked, poor, broken, in prison, sick? I don't remember when, when we saw you. He's like, yeah, you didn't because you didn't go to where I'm at. You didn't actually pursue me in those places because that's where he is. He's redeeming lost people, broken people. And I may be the peskiest pastor in the world, but my prayer is that we would have hearts broken for that. Broken for broken people. That our hearts would push toward them and that Jesus, we'd get in that current of love. Like, well, where's that, where's that kind of love come from where you just pour yourself out with no expectation of any return? Oh, that's just Jesus. It's the only game in town. <laughs> it's Jesus is the only one doing it. And if I want to get close to Jesus... I step, in, I step into those areas where he's at. Well, where do you find the love, the, the, the abundant, overflowing river of life? Where does that come from? Oh, well, we know, right? So it's, it's more like dropping in to the river that is the love of Jesus and letting his love propel and compel so that we would then be those who... Call out like ambassadors, be reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5. So how do we silence the lips of the people who want to make false accusations against us? What does the scripture say? How do we silence the lips of foolish, ignorant people? Um, our lives do the talking. Let me read to you from 1 Peter. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you or speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, how many of you have asked that? God, what's your will for me? <laughs> like, join us. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Even servants, workers, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. This is a gracious thing. For what credit is it if you, when you sin, are beaten for it and that you endure? Well, you know, I got, a, I got a beaten for doing the wrong thing. But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's how Jesus' actions showed his belief, right? 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, doing right by others and by God. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Our lips and our lives should silence the ignorance of foolish people as we speak to the glory of God. And they're still not going to understand us really until the day comes, until they meet Jesus one way or another. So Peter wrote that um, in, in the 50s AD. Just, just about 60 years later, um, a, a letter goes, goes back. So Peter wrote it to these people in northern Turkey. And then there was this governor in northern Turkey who wrote to the emperor Trajan in 112 AD, and his name is Pliny the Younger. And this is him trying to figure out, what do you do with these Christians? What do you do with them? They don't seem to do anything wrong, he says. <laughs> it's not like they have anything wrong, but I don't like what they believe. I don't like it, and we need to stop it. So what do you suggest? So he, he writes for advice to the emperor. Along, he sends some Roman Christians along who are citizens and saying, deal with them. Kind of like Paul was like, go, go to Caesar. We don't know what to do with you. But he writes for advice about limits and methods to stamping out the Christians who are spreading like wildfire. They, they haven't committed any crimes, but I should still punish them, right? I should still, this just doesn't seem right that they believe these things. He said, you know, for those that reported to me as Christians, he says, I interrogated them whether they were Christians. And if they confessed it, I repeated the question twice again, adding the threat of capital punishment. If they persevered, I ordered them to be executed. For whatever the nature of their creed may be, I don't get it, he says. I can at least feel no doubt that their stubborn refusal and inflexible obstinacy deserved, deserved chastisement. Like, I just don't like that they're still loyal to Jesus. That just doesn't make any sense to me. So they, they, we could kill them, right? We can kill them for that, right? Some who denied that they were or ever had been Christians repeated after me an invocation to the gods and offered adoration with wine and frankincense to your image, Trajan, which I ordered to be brought for that purpose, together with those of the gods, and they finally cursed Christ. So I was able to get some of them to give up this foolishness. Some of them I had to kill. Others, because they're Roman citizens, I had to send to you. But this just doesn't sit well with him. In northern Turkey, 112 AD. They did affirm, however, the whole of their guilt, or that their error was this, that they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, probably a Sunday morning, and they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to God. They bound themselves by a solemn oath not to do any wicked deeds, never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, really just to be good, right? To do right by others. Nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it. After which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. They're like having bread and wine. I don't know. Should we, should we kill them for that? I'm not sure. What do we do with these Christians? 
And I think it's, just, it's suffering innocently for Jesus and with Jesus is the way that millions and millions of Christians live today. They're not doing anything wrong. They just love Jesus. And you're going you're gonna to hear me talk about it. If you need help investigating the truths, I will help you investigate the truths. That's the early in eyewitness testimony. If, if you want to see it lived out, just come, come live among us and see our, see our lives. And yet we're, we're not going to be understood because these embers are dying out of the Western culture being like, oh, Christians, awesome, great, that's awesome. I knew a Christian once, that's awesome, go ahead. It's just gonna, it's, it's, I think it's just going to get exponentially weirder to worship Jesus Christ as supreme Lord that's my sense. But the good news for the world feels like a hard news and a hard word for us. And, and we're not fit for the task. If, if only heaven would help us. Right? If, if all hell is against our, our message and our lives, if, if only heaven would help us. And I just want you to soak in some words as we finish today. When you place your allegiance in Jesus, brother or sister, and trust in his forgiveness of your sins, he comes to dwell in you, with you. Your lips and your lives will begin to match up because of the name of Jesus. And he hasn't given up on you and he won't give up on you. How many of you lack <laughs> in the areas of like, man, I... Everything about my lips and lives matches up. We lack all the time, but his grace is so, he's so merciful, so kind. And he wants to cooperate with us. So will we cooperate with him? Those who are in the flesh, Romans 8, 8 says, cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit. If... In fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But, but if the Spirit of Christ dwells in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, oh, look out. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You want life that is truly life? It's the spirit of Christ living in you. You may be going like, yeah, with that if. <laughs> Go back to that if. He, he is willing and able to forgive your sin and to open you up. Just swear your allegiance to Jesus. We kind of quoted earlier, confess with your mouth. Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God, God raised him from the dead. You shall be saved, right? Just go, go into that story and say, Jesus, take me. Give your life to him. Be baptized. Be raised to your new life in him. Ephesians 1, the last thing. This, listen to this. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, Paul says, I don't hesitate, don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord, Jesus, the Messiah, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, 
having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That seems unstoppable. It seems like the king has it under control. It seems like he is the head of the body, the church, and all things are under the feet of those who are willing to suffer with Jesus and do good and let his power of resurrection life flow through us. That seems pretty unstoppable. I don't even think your misbehavior is going to stop Jesus. I think you just want to cooperate with him and just get out of his way and say, Jesus, do this thing in and through your people. These types of testimonies, these three types of testimonies, beloved, the personal, the early and eyewitness, are going to match up with the testimony of your life when the Spirit of Christ is set free to do what he wants to do in your life. So let's just close and, and ask him, Spirit, would you have your way with us? Do your thing. May my life testify to how good and amazing you are.